Hi, this is Pastor Scott Stroud, and I'd like to thank you for joining us online today as you're watching this sermon series. I know that COVID has had a big impact on the church, and many people have been viewing from home uh, for three years now. And so, if you're one of those, thank you for coming and interacting with us online. But I would also like to extend a personal invitation to come and check us out here at Elam. And we know that fellowship is very important. According to the Bible, we should not uh, give up meeting together as some are in the habit of doing. And as you're thinking about, can you come now and, and venture out and join us uh, in, in person, uh, we would like to invite you and welcome you into the fellowship aspect of our worship time. Hope to see you soon on some Sunday at 10 a.m. life of Jesus and uh, specifically looking through the Gospels here. And our Gospel lesson today here uh, is talking really about investment. And in the investing world, there is something called trading futures. When you trade futures, it's a contract that you purchase that locks a particular commodity at a set price for a specific date in the future. For instance, let's say that you are a home builder and you're worried about the price of lumber that it will probably increase dramatically due to inflation over the next year. And you want to be able to accurately set the price of the home that you're building so that when it closes, you'll make money off of it. However, when you're looking at lumber, you're worried that as you see inflation rising, that perhaps the price of lumber will increase so much so that you will not make a profit. And so in this instance, you may sign a futures contract with a lumber supplier for a set amount of two-by-fours. Let's say the current price of two-by-fours is $3.25 per board. So you purchase this contract for 5,000 two-by-fours at $3.40, a little bit higher than the current rate. One year from the signing of that said contract, the company will deliver the product. If the prices spike to $5 a board, you've made a wise futures investment. However, if they drop to $2 a board, you've gambled and lost. The thing that balances this out, of course, is that you've set the price of the house based on the futures price of those boards that you've signed the contract for. And so you're still gonna make money. You'll just lose out on the money that you could have made if you had waited to secure those boards at $2. In many ways, it's kind of an insurance against radical upticks in inflation. Now, imagine you had the ability to see into the future. You would know whether or not prices were going to fluctuate. And this is essentially what our text is about today. Peter is asking Jesus about what his future will be. And the reason he's asking is because of a conversation that has just taken place previously to this passage we're looking at, where Jesus is talking to a rich young ruler. And this rich young ruler came to him wondering how he could obtain eternal life. Listen to their dialogue. If you would enter life, keep the commandments. He said to him, which ones? And Jesus said, you shall not murder you shall not commit adultery, you shall not steal, you shall not bear false witness, honor your father and mother, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. The young man said to him, all of these I have kept, what do I still lack? 
Jesus said to him, If you would be perfect, go sell your possessions and give to the poor, and you will have the treasures in heaven, and come follow me. When the young man heard this, he went away sorrowful, for he was of great possessions. And so after this conversation, Jesus tells his disciples privately, Truly I say to you, only with difficulty will a rich person enter the kingdom of heaven. Again, I tell you, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. When the disciples heard this, they were greatly astonished, saying, who then can be saved? And the reason that the disciples were so greatly astonished was twofold. Number one, this man said that he had kept the law perfectly. He had not failed in obeying the commandments. And they were raised up under the law of Moses. They knew about this. Secondly, he was a very wealthy man. And in that culture, they believed that wealthy people were specifically blessed by God. That's the reason that they were wealthy. The main problem, as noted by the Enduring Word commentary, is that the man had climbed to the top of the ladder of success only to find his ladder was leaned against the wrong building. He'd strictly followed the law, similar to Paul before his conversion. Whereas Jesus was saying, follow me, I am the fulfillment of the law. And Peter wonders, have we trusted in the wrong ladder? He says as much in his question in verse 27. See, we have left everything and followed you. What then will we have? Jesus then goes on to lay out four benefits of following him that the disciples should be assured of. And by the way, these benefits are also for you if you have determined to follow Jesus in your life. The first future promise that Jesus makes to his disciples is that because they have followed him, they will have future authority. He says, in the new world, when the Son of Man sits on his glorious throne, you have followed me, will sit on 12 thrones, judging the 12 tribes of Israel. Now first we must note here that Jesus is specifically making a promise to the disciples, not disciples in general. We know he's making this promise to the 12, because we see in Luke 22, through 20, uh, Luke 22 28 through 30, it says, you are those who have stayed with me in my trials, and I assign to you, as my Father assigned to me, a kingdom, that you may eat and drink at my table in the kingdom and sit on thrones, judging the twelve tribes of Israel. And so it was those who had stayed with him through his trials, namely the twelve disciples. In fact, Jesus showed the Apostle John in Revelation 21.14, that the wall of the city, the new Jerusalem in heaven, had 12 foundations, and on them were the 12 names of the 12 apostles of the Lamb. And so, at first glance, this futures contract doesn't seem to apply to us. However, look at Revelation 3, 20-21. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door... I, Jesus, will come in with him and eat with him and he with me. The one who conquers, I will grant him to sit with me on my throne, as I also conquered and sat down with my father on his throne. 
And so does this, does this mean that millions or perhaps even billions of people that have been saved will crowd onto the throne with Jesus? Well, no, it doesn't really mean that. It's allegorical in nature. Although perhaps maybe it's like Santa where everybody lines up and gets to sit with Jesus for a minute or whatever. But one of the main reasons I believe that it's allegorical is if we look at Ephesians 2, 5 through 6, which says, By grace you've been saved and raised up with him and seated with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. The grammatical structure there in that sentence sets it as a current event. As you place your trust in Christ, you are now seated with him in the heavenly realms. Seated with Christ. Currently. And this infers many things, one of which is the fact that it has been allotted to us an inheritance. And one of the benefits of that inheritance is authority. Jesus told people that this, uh, Peter that this authority was in regard to judging Israel. As the disciples were walking around with Jesus, and he was uh, doing his earthly ministry to Israel specifically, he was focused on Israel at that time, they saw firsthand whether or not people in Israel were responding to him, following him, rejecting him. And they saw that salvation came through him. And they have now authority as witnesses and therefore can make an accurate judgment regarding this rejection or acceptance. Now this does not indicate that the 12 disciples will be sitting forever on 12 thrones in heaven, settling all the disputes of heaven for all the people in the new world. However, they will forever hold prominence in eternity as ones who Jesus chose first as the first followers. We, too, share in this role of judgment, as is indicated in 1 Corinthians 6.2, where Paul tells Gentile believers, do you not know that the saints will judge the earth? This indicates that we do not have to fear the day of judgment. We are not among those being judged. <laughs> Rather, we're standing in agreement with the judge himself regarding unbelievers and their rejection of the way of salvation. In fact, like the disciples, we have seen firsthand those things that convict the unbeliever. The evidence is their own words, their own actions. And as we stand there, we nod in agreement with Jesus, proclaiming his sentence, Depart from me, I never knew you. Jesus declares that the next thing that's guaranteed in our futures contract is that there are sacrificed relationships that we have here on earth and wealth, but if we do that here on this earth, it will not go unnoticed in heaven. Look at verse 29. And everyone who has left houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or children or lands for my name's sake will receive a hundredfold. Notice here there is a mention of three specific things. Houses, family, and land. Now I don't want you to read this too literally like, if I left my home here on earth for the sake of Christ, when I get to heaven, he's going to give me 100 homes. 
Or, my father disowned me because of my faith in Christ here on the earth, and so when I get to heaven, Jesus is going to give me 100 fathers. That phrase, 100-fold, just means an excessive abundance. Let's take an example of homes and land. William Borden of Chicago, Illinois, was the heir to a parent to the Borden family silver mining fortune, not the condensed milk fortune. As an example, his family's wealth, on his 16th birthday, his parents gifted him with a trip around the world. And after he graduated from Yale, he turned down several high-paying positions, jobs, potential jobs, and he decided to go on to seminary at Princeton. And when he graduated from seminary, he felt led of the Lord to go to China. And he was going to go to China to minister to the Chinese Muslims there. And as he was on his way, he felt it would probably be good to learn Arabic as he was going to be speaking with them in mostly Arabic and related to Arabic in the Quran. And so he went to Egypt first to learn the language. As soon as he got there, he contracted cerebral meningitis and died within a month. Right before he died, he wrote two words in the back of his Bible. No regrets. Borden gave up everything for the sake of the name of Christ, including his life. And how does the Bible indicate that he will receive 100-fold in the future in regard to his investment on the earth? I'd like to point to Luke 16.9, where Jesus said, I tell you, use worldly wealth to gain friends for yourselves, so that when it is gone, the wealth, you will be welcomed into heavenly dwelling places. Because of Borden's choice to forsake his family fortune, his death was mourned around the world. He influenced a generation of missionaries in regard to sacrificial love and extreme sacrifice. He gave up $800,000 to the Chinese Inland Mission upon his death, money which made it possible for numerous missionaries to work there. And in heaven, he will be the honored guest at many a house. Those that that money and that influence had impacted will be seen in homes that he will be accepted to in heaven. People whose lives he's touched. Not only that, but the Bible tells us that Borden will receive an actual, literal home in heaven. We see this in John 14.1. Jesus said, in my Father's house there are many mansions. I go to prepare a place for you, so that where I am, you may also be. On the literal planet, the new earth, there will be literal streets with literal mansions prepared for the children of God. And by the way, don't miss the fact that it's Jesus who's doing the preparing. He's the architect of your mansion. He's the interior designer. He's the one who's filling it with the things that you need for when you arrive. Not to mention, this mansion will never need to be torn down because of being dilapidated. It's an eternal dwelling place. Millions of years from now, you will know exactly where Barry Longthorpe's mansion is in heaven. You'll know exactly how to find Marilyn Carter's place. You'll know how to get over to Dara's if she's made some of those amazing coconut bars that she makes, <laughs> right? 
The point is, things in this life are temporal. In eternity, they go on forever. And even if you have a nice home here, someone else is going to own it in probably 75 years, or maybe even less. That money, those antiques, that priceless baseball card signed by Babe Ruth are all going to burn. And so Jesus is saying here, follow me. Don't worry. I can promise you true, eternal riches. He also encourages us us to not worry about relationships that turn sour because we've decided to follow him. You know, I wish that I could say that I had a close relationship with my siblings. Frankly, we only see each other at funerals, usually. Maybe I'll call them once in a while on Christmas. And yet, the reason is because they don't really have a relationship with the Lord like I do, from what I can see anyways. And I would rather actually spend my time with believers. I'd rather celebrate Christmas with people that actually believe that Christmas is about a baby being born and saving us from our sins. And that might sound kind of cold, you know, well, Pastor Scott, you don't have a really good relationship with your family? Jesus didn't either. Look at Matthew 12, 48 through 50. Who is my mother? Who are my brothers? Pointing to the disciples, he said, here is my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of my Father in heaven is my brother and sister and mother. How much of a slap in the face must have that been to Mary? Because actually what was happening there was they came to drag him away. They thought he was crazy. I mean, things changed for them. In fact, James becomes one of the disciples later on after Jesus dies. The next thing we see here that Jesus promises in this futures contract is eternal life. He's really now getting at the heart of what the question was for the rich young ruler. What must I do to have eternal life? This man had achieved the dream. He had all the things that Jesus had spoken of. He had authority as a ruler. He had houses and land, which was indicated by the word rich. He most likely had relationships and influence. However, it all meant nothing without permanence. Solomon, who was the richest ruler in the history of Israel, said it this way in Ecclesiastes 6, 1 and 2. There is an evil that I've seen under the sun, and it lies heavy on mankind. A man to whom God gives wealth, possessions, and honor, so that he lacks nothing in all he desires, yet God does not give him the power to enjoy them, but a stranger enjoys them. There it is in a nutshell. God's given an individual the means for a good life, but God has denied them the power to enjoy it. And many of the struggles that we see in this life today have that at its core, that power. If I could only somehow have power and control over my circumstances or people, I could have it all. I could have wealth, love, happiness, a rewarding career, people respecting me. Yet even with all of these things in place, people's lives are cut short. They have no power over death. Sure, they might be able to afford the best health care, personal trainers to keep them in good shape, a chef to make sure that they eat the right things. But who can stop them from having an accident, a meaningless accident? Or who can assure them that they will have the mental health to prevent themselves from committing suicide like so many rich people have done? 
And how does Jesus say that we obtain this eternal life? We obtain it by following him, by believing in him. What? That's it? I don't have to pray five times a day, take a pilgrimage to Mecca, achieve nirvana, be reincarnated numerous times, atone for my sins, suffer in purgatory? No. Follow him. Walk away from the temporal and go after the eternal. That's what he was telling that rich young ruler. That's all temporal. Come after the eternal. Let that word sink in, though. Eternal. I know it's hard to get our minds around it because we're in the area where everything dies, right? Now, don't judge me. I've been binge-watching The Walking Dead lately. It's basically about a band of survivors who are trying to outlive the zombie apocalypse. And I was telling my son, I said, you know the title of the show shouldn't be The Walking Dead. It should be Everybody Dies. Because it seems like the main premise of every episode is to introduce some new character that you fall in love with and then they kill him off in some grotesque way. And yet, what's happening around us right now is actually a drawn-out version of the sped-up version of what happens on this TV show. People are getting horrible diseases, suffering senseless accidents all the time. One of the characters on the show is a young girl named Enid. And she has a motto that she scribbles on walls in the dirt and on like glass from uh, dusty cars and all this wherever she goes. She writes JSS, which stands for Just Survive Somehow. And sadly, that's the motto of most of the world. Just survive somehow. Now, transition to heaven. There's no more need for JSS. You're safe. <laughs> Safe from disease, safe from old age, safe from accidental maimings, safe from somebody trying to kill you and take what you have. And most significantly of all, you are safe from being thrown in the lake of fire because of God's wrath. All because you have followed Jesus. And finally we see here that Jesus kind of throws in a last line almost as an afterthought. Oh, and by the way, many who are first will be last and the last will be first. And I don't think he's talking about some line at the pearly gates, right? Rather, I think he's talking about what is commonly known in our culture as fame culture. In another conversation Jesus is having with his followers in Matthew 23, 11, he says, the greatest among you shall be your servant. And so the question is, what's wrong with wanting to become famous? Or to put it another way, of wanting to be among the greats. Well, actually, according to Jesus here, there's absolutely nothing wrong with wanting to be famous. As long as you want to be famous for the right thing. Let's think of someone in our modern culture that is currently famous. Someone who I can say their name, and everyone in here will know exactly who I'm talking about. Tiger Woods. And why is Tiger Woods so famous? Well, there are numerous, numerous reasons. First, he's known by most experts to be the greatest golfer that has ever lived. I won't bore you with the statistics, but trust me, they're impressive. Second, he broke some major racial and socioeconomical barriers in a sport that was predominantly for white rich people before he started playing. And finally, he's famous or infamous for some of his off-the-course misdeeds, including numerous marital extra, uh, extramarital affairs, which caused him to actually go into rehab for sex addiction, angry confrontations with the public, and his car wreck, which actually 
has almost virtually ended his career. However, will Tiger Woods be famous in heaven? Well, by his own admission, he's a practicing Buddhist. And his own testimony shows that he's not a follower of Jesus. In fact, the only time I've ever heard Tiger Woods use the name of Jesus is as a curse. Profanity. Somebody moved over there you know, while he was trying to hit his shot, and he cries out the name of Jesus. And so unless this changes, he will not even be remembered in heaven. No one's going to be standing around talking about the four majors that Tiger Woods won. In Isaiah 65, 17, God says, See, I will create a new heavens and a new earth. The former things will not be remembered, nor will they come to mind. And by the way, another famous person that will not be remembered or talked about is Buddha, the person that he's following. So how is it that some unknown, obscure Christian mom from Lake Stevens, Washington, will be greater in heaven than Tiger Woods? She will be great because the one that she has followed is great. Our good deeds are only great and praiseworthy because they're done in the name of Jesus. Missionary C.T. Studd said it best, only one life will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. So as we wrap up today, the main question that arises from this sermon is, do you have a futures contract? Have you signed it? All these promises that Jesus has made can be yours personally. And if you have any doubts today, the Lord wants to erase that from your mind. If you could reach in your bulletins and pull out, there's a sheet in there called Futures Contract. And I just want to read that for you really quick here. I, insert name here, pray the following prayer on this day, January 29th, 2023, in full agreement with the Holy Scriptures. Heavenly Father, I know that I have broken your laws and my sins have separated me from you. I am truly sorry. And now I want to turn away from my past sinful life toward you. Please forgive me based on the shed blood of your son, Jesus, and help me avoid sinning again. I believe that Jesus Christ was conceived by the Holy Spirit, was born of the Virgin Mary, lived a perfect sinless life, was crucified for my sins, was resurrected from the dead, is alive, and here's my prayer. I invite Jesus to become the Lord of my life, to rule and reign in my heart from this day forward. Please send your Holy Spirit to help me obey you and to do your will for the rest of my life. In Jesus' name, amen. If you have never prayed that prayer, today is the day of salvation. Today is your day. I'd encourage you to actually sign this and give it to me. I was at my grandpa's funeral. And my grandpa, he lived kind of a, he wasn't a big church-going guy, didn't really go much, went for Christmas, Easter, and that kind of thing. And so he died, and I was supposed to do the funeral. I was in seminary at the time. And I was like, I don't even know if he's saved, you know? Until the pastor of the church that he once in a while attended brought me a very similar document to this that my grandfather had signed. That he said, I believe this. He didn't live the perfect life. He wasn't a very good follower of Jesus. But he trusted in Jesus. And that gave me comfort in that moment. And so for you too, I would encourage you 
to sign that contract. And if you want to just keep it for yourself, and if you wonder once in a while, am I really saved? Pull that thing out and look at what it takes to be saved. And so based on your statement of belief, Jesus assures you in John 6, 47, I tell you the truth, anyone who believes has eternal life. Let's pray. Father God, thank you for your amazing promises. Lord, I thank you for all that you've done in our lives and how you've given us so much. You died for our sins. We pray for those around us, even people like Tiger Woods who has declared that they don't believe in you, but they're still alive, Lord. They still have a chance. And so we lift them up to you and pray that somehow there be a breakthrough for them. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for tuning in to this sermon series from Elam. If you are encouraged today, would you consider supporting our online ministry through a financial contribution? Personal checks can be made out to Elam Lutheran Church and sent to 11504 26th Street, Northeast, Lake Stevens, Washington, 98258. Or you can give online at elamlutheran.net. Thank you and may God bless you the rest of your day.